Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin of 538 of his Last Night in Basketball blog, which is great. And we talk, start about the NBA Finals, talk about that for about a half an hour, and then we get into takeaways from the playoffs and a little bit about the offseason to come. Really enjoyed this episode. Runs about an hour, brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus. And I hope Hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It feels like each game in this series, I, I and I try to avoid the the hot takes. It feels like every game is like this broad swinging pendulum, and that's you know that's kind of been the Celtics' whole playoffs. What from Game Three do you think carries through to Game Four in the rest of the series? I think that the the overarching takeaway from the three games has been the same as the takeaway from each game, at least to me, which is that it's sort of the same as what what I thought about the Eastern Conference Finals. If the Celtics can avoid, like, the we're going to turn it over eight times in ten possessions stretch, I think they're just kind of better because of their combination of size and athleticism. Um, They really have physically overwhelmed the Warriors for a lot of the three games so far. They're, They're so much taller, longer, more athletic. Um, and if they can stop doing dumb stuff, like if they can get out of their own way for 10 minutes in a row, it seems like they should be able to win. But much like the Warriors are often unable to get out of their own way at times, the Celtics really are unable to do that at times. They are. And I think that's a great point related to that. And the, you know, bigger, stronger, faster idea is that an advantage. I mean, I was really torn on who to pick in the series in the first place. And an advantage that I thought about a lot for Boston is that they don't have to run complicated stuff to generate an advantage. They have some really talented creators. They're, the Warriors are not playing five great defenders basically at any point in time, especially with Andre Guadalla extremely limited. And so what that means is you don't have to do like, going back to that like Celtics-Raptors series in the bubble, you don't have to do like two or three different screens to try to get in the matchup. And Brad Stevens actually generally didn't do that. Jalen Brown is causing problems for basically every Warriors perimeter defender. And part of the reason why Brown has at times done better than Tatum in this series is because oftentimes your best attack is just attacking quickly, seeing what you can get and then moving, not only because that gives you more options if it doesn't work, but also because dancing around gives the help more time to position and everything else. And so I thought that in his best stretches, you know, like those shots are not Jalen Brown's, the tough shots he hit at the beginning of game two and at stretches in game three. And of course the end of game one, those aren't always going to fall, but you get better looks that way. And I mean, that's a part of why in game three, Boston took 30, sorry, 41 shots in the paint. Yeah. I mean, Jalen is, I think a little bit more of a straight line slasher driver type than Tatum is. Um, even when Tatum drives, it's typically more of a, like, I'm going to shake the guy off the dribble and go around him rather than I'm just going to, like, drive through a guy. Although he did, like, put Steph under the rim one time in the first half. 
uh, in Game 3. But I do think that that is a reason why Jalen has had a little bit more success, uh, at least off the dribble, is just because he's got more of that just like bully ball ability, I guess you want to call it, just because of the way they're built. Like he's much more compactly built than Tatum is, who's more like, you know, long and lanky. Not that Jalen isn't long, but Tatum is more like lanky or wiry or whatever. And uh, Brown I, I always go the Jason and Jalen. Like, come on, it's tripping me up. Um, and that's Jaylen why. I, that's like, why I typically use last names for those two. Yeah, and you know, Jalen is more like compactly built, I guess, and that poses a problem, you know, especially for guys like Steph, but even for someone like Draymond, because Jalen is quicker than him. Whereas, you know, so he doesn't necessarily have the strength advantage, and he doesn't have the quickness advantage. With Tatum, he probably has the strength, even if he doesn't have the quickness. So it's a little bit different when they're attacking. Agreed. And Marcus Smart has done a good job overall kind of picking his spots. He will always be a little overly aggressive, but generally that over over aggression, it's led to some bad turnovers. But I think can we can we talk about Smart's two for one hunting and how bad he is at it? He is horrendous at it. It's like I've never seen someone so like dead set on being like, I'm going to get this two for one and get a horrible shot every time and often get a, I, I and often get a horrible shot about two seconds later than you would actually want to get the two for one yes and or earlier so that the other team can come back and get a two for one that can happen too and like there was one that wasn't smart it was Derek white where he he took the shot but Derek white was wide open like that was the shot within the flow i don't even know if he knew it was a two for one opportunity but yeah marcus smart has done a few of those and with smart again trying to get downhill if you don't have it looking for the pass and as you kind of opened with, and I think this is so essential to understanding the Celtics in this series, they don't, I, I brought up before, you don't have to do creative actions to generate an advantage. You also don't need to make those incisive passes if the downside risk is significant, because in game three, really the only things that went well for the Warriors offensively were opportunities in transition, which were both turnovers and the, a lot of those like missed layups, like Tatum had a couple and then he's flailing his arms at the ref and they're playing five on four and other than those circumstances which you know was a reasonable amount of the Warriors possessions they weren't really able to get anything going and that's a credit to Boston's wonderful defense overall it's a credit it's it's an acknowledgement of the Warriors limited other creators especially the way the Celtics are defending Draymond Green and so as Boston there are times especially I mean another one that people were like people were Nate and I were doing playback yesterday is they saying like as soon as Jason Tatum goes up for a layup just start running the other four guys should just start running back um and i mean they got some offensive rebounds so there's there's some merit to trying to get that but the idea basically as i would put it is the down like if you can it's so funny because this used to be a warriors thing if you can avoid beating yourself if you can avoid those like kind of the the unforced errors rely on your talent it's sort of the equivalent i i hark on this all the time and robert williams has been an example i've used a lot of other guys more where it's like i I often yell at big guys to trust your size it's the same thing for boston like trust your talent and if you don't get in your own way not going to win every game but have a pretty good shot yeah and I, i mean it feels like we've been screaming at them collectively this entire postseason the same thing it's it's been the same in every series it's like if they don't turn it over a ton of times they're probably going to win, you know, um, and that's, you know, a, a testament to 
the combination of like size, length, athleticism, and skill that they have, and then just how well they're how well built, well executed their defense is, because it's it's just so tough to score against them if you don't have like multiple elite level threats and we've seen basically the warriors can score if they put steph in the pick and roll against horford and right now that's like it unless they're getting turnovers because the rest of their half court offense has basically been nothing I think that's fair. And I mean, one of the reasons why things have worked out well for Boston, I think this has gone a little bit comparatively under the radar, is that in the two games that Boston has won, games one and three, Andrew Wiggins took a combined 13 three-pointers. And in the game that they lost, he only took three. And part of that is, you know, they're leaving him open and Wiggins is going to have to take some of the shots. He can drive periodically out of that. But the ball, like the Celtics can try and, you know, this is the part that's people talk about you know shooting three-pointers versus your average is you can try to make the ball find the right person and you can't guarantee that they'll make it or miss it but Wiggins has not offensively been up to the standard that the Warriors need for him especially in games one and two when Clay was awful Clay had a better game three offensively but they still needed something from Wiggins and it didn't happen yeah I mean I think it's an issue right now that the the number of two-way or the number of guys contributing in a positive um, manner on both sides of the ball right now for them is maybe one, right? Like Clay, even in this game where he was um, where he shot the ball well, I didn't think he was particularly good defensively. Wiggins, I think, has been pretty good on defense, but like you said, has been two games where he's not done very well offensively. When Poole comes in, his defense is a big problem. Um, I think like Otto Porter has probably been pretty good on both sides, but he's like a guy that comes off the bench and plays twenty minutes. Like Looney has Looney and Draymond not looking at the rim at all when they touch the ball has been an issue because it's allowed the Celtics to sort of rotate to the next guy before they necessarily have to, which has taken away some of the options in uh, in Golden State's half court offense, and then just the like. There's been a lot of talk during the broadcasts about the Celtics playing, you know, the drop defense against the Steph pick and rolls. And when he walks right into threes, obviously, it's a huge problem. But not blitzing Steph to get the ball out of his hands has taken away the Draymond short roll stuff, which is the best thing he does offensively. And I think it's been a big part of why he hasn't been effective really at all so far through three games. That's fair. And I think that with Green, you I think the Celtics could actually do a better job defending some of those four on threes if that's if that's the way they chose to do it. They've done a better job threat assessing on some of the Warriors bigs, but they also have really good personnel. And so I think that like Horford, if depending on how they want to structure these actions, but but the problem is that he's probably going to be one of the blitzers, so you might not be able to have him there. And they understand better, I think, than most that Draymond is looking to pass in a lot of those circumstances. They're giving him a little bit more lane to work with, and Draymond doesn't really want to work with that lane. That's not what he's... It's not generating the shots that Draymond wants to take, if there are any that he truly wants to take other than an open dunker layup. And the Warriors, you know, like, that they are very aware of the rim protection, especially when Robert Williams is out there. I mean, Jordan Poole. They were, had, they were terrified of Robert Williams last night in the second half in particular. Right. And Williams also did a better job defending, you know, defending on Curry than Horford did. And 
how much he can play. You know, but, but I don't think he. I wouldn't expect him to play more than 26 minutes, and maybe even those 26 minutes won't be nearly as good in some of the future games in the series. But if they can get anything close to that from him, probably enough. You know, again, the idea of like, you know, you don't need everything from everyone. In if you're the superior team in that respect, and I mean, we don't know what. I mean, it seems like the preliminary news is positive on Steph Curry's foot. I don't think we need to dwell on that because if he Steph said he's going to, he said he's going to play. Yeah, twenty minutes ago, and and if he's meaningfully less than one hundred percent, then the Warriors are probably out because mm-hmm. that they they need him for that. And I guess that's a place to go here is that. I won't say that's how the award will be or should be voted, but I would say, even though they're down to one, that Stephen Curry has been the MVP of the final so far. Yeah, I mean, I think he's the only one that's played well in all three games, probably, right? Like, I can't think of anybody who was anybody else. Um, or did Ste- Did I'm trying to remember. Did he not shoot well in game two? He was 9 of 21, but he was 5 of 12 from three. So, I mean, like, 29 points on... 24 possession 24 shooting possessions and only two turnovers i'm fine with that he had the obviously the the big early stretch in game one and then not much um in the second half but it's kind of been like that for him through the whole series where he's gone on like these binges and then been quiet for a little while and then had a binge like it's like Boston, much like offensively, where they have these stretches where they screw up, it's been the same thing on defense where, you know, Steph has sort of walked into a bunch of open shots uh, for a few minute stretches at a time. Curry's also generally been pretty solid on defense. He was worse in game three in part because of the foul trouble, but I thought he held his own reasonably well in games one and two. So the idea, he he was, two-way player might be overstating it a little bit, but he's been more than holding his own in the aggregate in this series defensively. Yeah, I think that um, last night they put him in a bunch of pick and rolls um, and got good stuff, not directly from attacking him, but from forcing the Warriors into rotation by attacking him. And Tatum and Brown did a really good job of like reading the help and making the right pass to the next guy who could either shoot or you know pump and drive to get to the rim. Um, I thought that that worked really well for Boston. It was a similar course of attack on Jordan Poole. It was just that Jordan Poole was giving it up with so little resistance that they didn't have to pass it to somebody else. And I know Draymond was getting frustrated with Poole. And Poole, incredibly, he is meaningfully better than he was when he, defensively when he was a rookie. But being better than he was doesn't mean he's anything better than terrible because he still is terrible. And the Celtics, to their immense credit, Imedoka, this coaching staff, they have done a better job than I think any of the Warriors' previous three playoff opponents understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the team they're facing. And so Stephen Curry, not a terrible defender, but the more you go after him, it makes makes things harder offensively, burn, burning the candle at both ends, and potential, as it was in Game 3, for foul trouble. A couple of those were poorly called, but, you know, I mean, he still played 37 minutes and would have played 39-40 if the game had been close at the end. But I think that's more a Jordan Poole story. I think that's more understanding how to defend Draymond and Looney. And so the Warriors aren't they aren't getting as much of their kind of low-hanging fruit as they were. I mean, if you want to go to the real extreme there of like games two and three against the Mavericks. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues also, I think, is that um, 
the best thing about Clay defensively when he was at his peak was that, you know, he's 6'6", but he could defend basically any perimeter player, including point guards, but especially, you know, the guys that were like like sized. But it doesn't seem like he has the foot speed right now to defend Jalen Brown, which has forced the Warriors to kind of jumble the matchups a bit. And I think that, you know, they've, they've got uh, Wiggins on Tatum a lot of the time. They've had Draymond on, on Jalen. They've had Clay on him for some of the time, but they're like mixing that up. That he's not able to just play Jalen the whole the whole way, I think makes them like obviously a, a much different team than they were during the the previous I don't know if it's the previous era, but the previous portion of this era, one of the two. Um, or even and I if think you want to go back to like the 15 team, they had right. they had more defensive options. Maybe they can use Gary Payton for some of that, but GP didn't do the best job on Jalen Brown in game three either. Right. And yes, that plus Iguodala not being healthy um, has like a knock-on effect on everybody else, I think. What I think Kerr should be considering is moving Wiggins off of Tatum, not because other players will do better, but because there aren't many players who will do nearly as well against Jalen Brown. And Tatum, Nate did a really good job discussing this in that net series. Like Basically, the only net that did a really good job on him was Bruce Brown, and that's because Bruce Brown, one of your favorites, is so physically strong that Tatum couldn't get into some of the stuff he does well. And we talked about the difference between Tatum and Brown as creators a little bit earlier. And so at this point, I've said the like that one of the biggest surprises to me post-return and this could shift as he gets more to 100%, is that Clay Thompson defensively to me, he I thought he was going to come back as a three, as a small forward. I think he's a four because he doesn't have the lateral agility right now to really stick with those faster guys. And so put Clay on Tatum when you can. And he's actually done kind of well as a help defender, which has been a weird, a weird little element of this. And then try Otto Porter in some of those circumstances. And I mean, if they want to go to Jonathan Kaminga, I think they're worried about him on both ends of the floor. But as a as another option, you know, just to see how it works, because Tatum is a fantastic player. I also think that he's dealing with a shoulder issue that might be beyond this stinger. He just doesn't look quite right to me. And with Tatum, it's the idea. There's an old school thing of like put your best defense on the other team's best player. And that, I think, is right a lot of the time, but distinctly not all of the time. And so with Tatum, it's more who can take away parts of his game, and I think these kind of more strong guys can do it. And distinct chance that Tatum exploits it, you still should try it more than the Warriors have. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the point about Clay maybe being a four defensively is an interesting one because it seems like the Warriors may agree with you. They've had him on Horford a bunch of the time that he's been out there, um, which is sort of you know why they switched Draymond over to um, to, to Jalen. Um, maybe putting I, I don't really know how well putting him on Tatum would work, but it's worth a shot. I do think that if they're going to make changes, it really needs to be more defensively than on offense because that's just been the bigger issue for them so far even though you know their, their offense has been an issue as well because like I like we were talking about earlier like they're not really getting much in the half court other than Steph pick and rolls against Horford but I think that defense is the bigger issue right now and changing up the matchups or figuring out something else to do is the first place that I would tinker you know you mentioned Kaminga that's something that people have been talking about uh, you know, since last night on Twitter, I think Tim Legler brought it up uh, when he was on Sports Center in the post game as well. 
I think that they might need to go there just like for some athleticism. Like they're getting so out athleticisms. I don't think that's a word, but it's a thing that's happening. And, you know, he's really the only guy other than Wiseman, who I don't think can play, um, who can bring that level of athleticism to match up with Boston. There's also a distinct element of Steve Kerr's personality that, with especially with young guys, he's more cognizant of the downsides than the upsides. Where Kaminga, he almost definitely will like miss some miss some decisions and do everything else. It's part of why Jordan Poole, I mean that and Jordan Poole being terrible on defense, that Kerr has been so reluctant to really heavily utilize him, other than when Poole is running super hot. And I think that's reasonable. However, at a certain juncture, you just need to see whether the things that could work will actually be be better they will justify that and there's you know the a matter of trust is important but when the things that you're trying aren't working as well then you can get deeper in this that's also why i wish they had tried moody and kaminga more over the course of the season i think those guys have actually generally done a little bit better than i anticipated in the cauldron i didn't expect the warriors to make the nba finals this year but i wish that they had played more this was a criticism i levied on doc rivers for not playing paul reed more and just just to get these guys ready for the distinct possibility and the regular season being a lab and everything else and you i remember you and i had a long conversation about nick nurse and the tactical the tactical elements that he did so well particularly in in 2019 but another element of that is you don't know because of injuries or ineffectiveness or what opponent you're going to face who you're going to need in a given series so you want everybody to be as close to ready as they can whatever that entails i I don't know what you're talking about doc rivers played paul reed as the backup center against small teams all year he told us that in a press conference so i don't think that he could be criticized about that um but no i mean i agree with you i think that it would have been nice to see these guys out there more often during the regular season so you would know if you could trust them um but i mean he has the guys he trusts and they're all healthy you know except except iguodala but but he was always going to be a bench player on this team anyway yeah but you know he was a bench player during the you know the previous uh, version of the team too. He was just a bench player that played you know thirty minutes a night or more in some in some cases. Um, you know, he, he did come off the bench, which I guess sure. technically makes him. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he was a high leverage, you know, thirty minute or so a game, a game guy, and and they've gotten more from Porter than I anticipated. Uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. he it looked like he was a little affected by something second half of game three. Hopefully, he's fine for game four because they've needed him with with Iguodala not particularly available. And the point you brought up about the Warriors on defense, I think it's particularly astute because they're. Other than other than a couple of different things, there isn't really that much offensively that is truly untapped other than playing more offensive personnel. That brings plenty of risk, though, with this specific team. We talked about their lack of two-way players. Yeah, I mean, more offense means more pool, which means more guys to hunt on defense for the most part. The human maybe over, maybe. Shout out to Bob Vigaris. Maybe you could go with more Porter, um, but I'm not sure how much he can hold up playing that many more minutes. Maybe more Moody just for another shooter out there, but I'm not sure how much that really does for you if he's not going to be able to create off the dribble also. It feels like they need another off the dribble creator or they need to unlock the Draymond short roll stuff. And if Boston's going to keep dropping, which you know, subjects you to step absolutely torching you and potentially to to pool doing the same and when he gets on ball, but takes away what, what Draymond does, then I don't know how else they get somebody creating off the bounce unless they play pool more. Yeah, I think that's fair. Any other thoughts you have on the the finals so far? 
I have a story going up tomorrow just about um, how Boston's offense has done what they have in the half court. Um, I think that the note so far is Gold State, uh, according to Clean the Glass, gave up like 91 points for 100 possessions in the half court during the regular season. Boston's been above 110 in two of the three games so far. Nice. That is highly unusual uh, against a, a defense as good as the Warriors. And uh, I wrote about how they've done that through the first few games. I am excited to read it. If you want to share any of that now, you can, but you don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about it earlier with, you know, putting Curry in a bunch of pick and rolls uh, in game three. Some of it is the offensive rebounding, which they had seven offensive rebounds in the second half um, in game three. And the Williamses created a bunch of good chances coming off of that. Um, some of it is just their their raining fire from outside. They're at like 44% from three and some of it is just they're getting to the rim except in game two in games one and three they've gotten to the rim and converted at the rim you know much more often and at a higher conversion rate than typical warriors opponents and like when you're testing them from inside and outside like that like that's why your defense isn't doing what it needs to be doing is because you're getting tested from everywhere you start putting trying to put out fires when they're driving to the rim and that's when tatum starts making that pass before the help defender really shows up in his face and you know when horford gets chances to to duck in because you sent a you sent his defender to help on the drive and things like that i really like that think there's there's a lot to it and as you mentioned the celtics dribble penetration in game three was excellent they were they were creating these advantages they were working through it that's a big part of how they got into the paint and how they were able to get you know not only more shots in the paint but also 24 to 15 of a free throw margin and it makes a huge difference and we talked about the possession game earlier the offensive rebounds are also important there but it's easier to get offensive rebounds on shots that are closer to the basket yeah but even the possessions where they're not getting in the paint i think they've done a really good job of testing yes golden state's defense um but they have gotten in the paint more often than uh than typical warriors opponents too um this is another stat from the story during the regular season golden state opponents got like got the ball into the paint at some point on 60 percent of half court possessions um in game three boston was at 65 percent. so and that's you know that's a not insignificant difference um in the context of a single game yeah that's that's a good point Plenty more to discuss with Jared Dubin, but first a message from betonline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's NBA Finals, the NHL Hockey Conference Finals, Major League Baseball scores, all the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use the promo code CLNS50 to get that bonus and get in on the action. Just to repeat it, CLNS50 gets you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Also tells them that you came from us, which we appreciate. So check it out at BetOnline.com where the game starts. So on the playoffs more broadly, I was thinking about, like, first of all, there's the context of, like, how differently would we feel if some of these teams had been healthy at the right time, like Milwaukee missing Middleton sucked. But I think that, for me, one of the 
early returns of the 2022 playoffs is the triumphant return of versatile defense that, you know, like that was, I, I thought a big problem for the Phoenix Suns. It's, it, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why they lost game seven, but the idea that they couldn't do a lot of, they couldn't do a lot of different things against the Mavericks and Dallas played excellently in the games they won in that series. I thought that, you know, for Milwaukee, not having as many different ways that they could go, whereas the Celtics and the Warriors really did. And that helped out. Yeah, I agree. And just the ability to have space erasers, whether it's guys who are taking away somebody's space off the dribble and you're crowding them, or guys who are taking away the space in the lane, or guys who can help into the lane and cover a ton of ground on closeouts. Like, any way you can take away space from, like, you because you have to be able to cover the paint, take away the paint, and get out to the shooters. You can't just let the shooters fire away and fire away and fire away like we saw, you know, the, the Bucks do against the Celtics, where a lot of those threes were open. you got to be able to at least get contests on those. And I think a lot of what Dallas did defensively during the playoffs was taking away threes from teams that, you know, are some of the best and, you know, most high-volume three-point shooting teams in the league. And that's, you know, another way you can go about it too. But having guys who can do... Who can make changes of direction multiple times in quick succession so that you could take away everything or at least come as close as you possibly can to being able to take away everything. That's just, you know, it it sounds stupid. Like, yeah, you got to have guys who are, you know, really good defenders. But like when you don't when you don't have that or when you have one guy who's a liability, either in terms of he can't play up or he can't play in space or he can't, you know, make quick decisions or, you know, you can't protect the rim like. If anybody has any weakness, it's going to be exploited until you figure out a way to cover up for it. And then they'll start testing some other weakness. Like that's what playoff series are. It's just probing for weaknesses until you find one, hammering that until the other team adjusts and then probing for another weakness. Exactly. And it's worth remembering that probing for that weakness doesn't always necessarily mean you're attacking that player one-on-one, getting to the basket and it's over. Sometimes what that means is the other, the, the team that's defending you is so keyed to that specific weak point that they will send help and then you have a pass to the opposite side or something else. We saw that in the Warrior, you know, the Warriors with Jordan Poole and some of the time with Steph. We saw it with Grayson Allen in the second round. And you you kind of got there in a different way, but one of the other what takeaways for me is the like I've focused so much over the years on the strength of the strength defensively and like how, you know the the Giannis's of the world and Draymond Green and everything else, but the absence of weakness too. And I mean, some of that is even series by series. I mean, the Warriors haven't really gone after Peyton Pritchard at all, but also Peyton Pritchard holds his own reasonably well. Yeah, I mean, except for when he's on the court with Steph, the Warriors don't have like the typical way that you would attack Peyton Pritchard. Like when they were playing Miami and Pritchard was on the court, they would, you know, engineer a switch and Jimmy Butler would go right at him or Hero would go right at him. Like, it's not like you're engineering a switch for Wiggins to go at Pritchard. And I think if you're doing that, the Celtics are like, great, go ahead. Like, we would love for that to be your offense. Um, And it's just... The way certain players' weaknesses, like you said, play into different series changes, like how you played qualitatively, um, but as well as like literally how you played in a series, like what you're doing to get what you want offensively or defensively from one series to the next often has very little correlation to each other because everything is matchup dependent in the playoffs, unlike in the regular season when you're just like doing your stuff for the most part trying to think if there do you have any other kind of takeaways from the playoffs so far um 
narrowing down who your guys are going to be for that series as quickly as possible and then only playing those guys is really important too. Shout out to Daniel Tice. Yeah. um, Like Tice can't be on the court. He just can't. And Yudoka figured that out after game two, I suppose. Um, But I think it was the first, I think it was the second half of game two. He didn't play memory serves. Well, they got blown out. So I'm sure he played at the end, but I don't think he came in on the regular rotation. They just went with the three big, I don't think he played in the second half of game one either, but then he was back in, uh, in the first half of game two. Um, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, but I'm thinking like some other series, like Kerr was playing Damian Lee earlier in the postseason, And it's just like, why are you doing this? He's not bringing, like, there's nothing, you know, no disrespect to Damian Lee, but there's nothing that he does better than another guy in the rotation couldn't give them already. And it's just like, this was our regular season rotation. He's our 10th guy. I'm going to play him. Like, you got to narrow things down as quickly as possible um, to your seven or eight guys that are the best suited for that particular series. And it might be different guys in one series and the next, with the exception of your top, you know, with the exception of your starters and maybe one or two bench guys, like your eighth or ninth guy might be different from one series to the next but you got to figure out who it is and you got to play them at the right times yeah i think that's that's really fair and you know there are a bunch of different examples that memphis having to change around their rotations not only due to player availability but like steven adams not being as good a fit and i i agree with our mutual friend seth partner that they could have found some more opportunities for adams against the wolves but he he was a specifically bad matchup against carl anthony town so probably would have been in the non-towns minutes which there weren't a lot of there were not And I I think another takeaway for me from these playoffs so far is a reminder for in normal circumstances that there there is kind of a line between like viable championship contender and everyone else and injuries can obviously shift everything but you know how how many players do you have that can hold their own in in a series like this how many different schemes can you go how many two-way players do you have and so the you know there are there are teams that are very good that i don't expect to win you know three series against varied opponents and that's totally fine it's just something to understand that just because you had the second or third or whatever best record in your conference doesn't mean i think you have a real good shot of actually making the finals or winning the title i think quinn snyder might agree with you oh boy and yeah i mean that's a key question for a lot of these franchises, and I mean, this can tie in, we want to talk about the loft season a little bit, is I've used the phrase for years of defining success. And it is exceedingly hard to get from good team that probably won't win a title to good team that will win a title. And Law Murray had the stat about teams that make the playoffs this many times and don't make a conference finals. They usually go firmly one direction or the other. Like you don't kind of hover for the, it's the treadmill of like super, like better, way better than mediocrity. And Quinn Snyder might've been part of that. And so teams, so you, you kind of get in a couple of different mental states as somebody who's running a team or even potentially sometimes a player who's on them one is you think you're better than that and so you just stay the course i think portland after they made the conference finals that year atlanta last year was a good example of that as well then there are other teams who identify it and say we we have this way to get better typically they have to have the draft resources or all that then you have teams that just tear it down that might be where utah is unclear at this moment that's not really been a danny Ainge thing as i'm recalling it you might remember better than me as somebody who's atlantic based and then i guess the other one is understanding where you are and just holding there because you're not going to do better yeah all of that decision making is like 
you've talked about quite often, ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA. All of that decision making when it comes down to it is driven by ownership. Like sure. if ownership says, you know, we're not rebuilding, then you're not rebuilding no matter what the best decision for the franchise is, you know? So it's all coming from like you just have to execute the vision as best as possible from whatever ownership decides. That's true. And there are a number of different examples, whether we're talking about teams that kind of refuse to tank and get the benefits that come from that, whether it's clearing the books or getting good young players or the teams that, you know, want to stay competitive. I mean, so like for me, it's weird that they've been this team for a couple of years now, but I like to think like of the kind of defining success. I think of the Toronto Raptors as the most fascinating because they have so many strong suits. They have the best general manager in the game, in my opinion. They have one of the best coaches in Nick Nurse, maybe the best coach. I would say he's more in, in the mix rather than the best coach right now. I have to really think about it. I'm happy Nate and John are doing those rankings now and I don't have to do them anymore. But they're tech- talent i mean wonderful defensive players i my inclination has been if the threshold is a championship they would need a significant upgrade and it happened once before it worked out and they got Kawhi. they won a title and then Kawhi went to la and there's no shame in being where they are they're a phenomenal team they've had they had that really rough run when they were in tampa and everything else and they were a fun they were a fun squad this year that got knocked out in the first round and that's why i mean raps fans get mad at me sometimes because i talked about they could they could trade their guys and they have all these positive value contracts it's it's a reasonable they they could i I, they're justified staying where they are they're justified pairing it back but that is such an important decision for the arc of a franchise well at least you know from their perspective that you can trust the guy making that decision right that he's gonna make the right decision but he got a new contract last offseason right like if i'm remembering correctly i i believe so so you know it's not like he's gonna make a decision and then be like all right i'm going to wherever like there's been rumors about plenty of places chasing after him doesn't seem like that's really on the table in the near future so yeah and maybe maybe scotty barnes i mean has the he has the arc that he can he can propel them to new heights siakam made another all nba team this year and siakam getting back to all nba level i think changes things at least a little bit it does. I think of the Raptors, you know, kind of like where they're going over the next couple of years if they hold it together as more of a team that can win a couple rounds than I think is going to win four rounds. And OK, I mean, you can work with that. And the other reason why I've used the Raptors for a lot of these examples is that just partially because Masai is such a great drafter, they have so many players that will be really good on a different team too. So like Fred Van Vliet has already thrived as a secondary offensive option on a title team. That is something that has happened. OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, they've filled that role differently as well. And they're better players, I would argue now, than they were then. Even Gary Trent Jr. I think can do well there. And I don't know what in the world Precious Chew is going to be, but he could very well fit that description too. Yeah, and like like you mentioned, they have a guy making the decisions there that is someone you can trust to do that. And they're also they're well positioned 
to go from a we can win a couple rounds team to being a we can win four rounds team because they do have those players that you mentioned. That's like the way you make that leap up the board is by having guys that other teams want that you can, you know, package into the guy or, you know, the second guy or whatever it is. That's how you've got to figure out how to do that. Or you draft them and maybe Scotty Barnes becomes a guy who can be one of, you know, your two or three best players on a title team. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at things a little bit differently two or three years from now. Sure. How would you be interpreting? I I, I think this is another one of those like interpretation fascinating questions. How would you be interpreting this season as your 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 best friend Pat Riley in the Miami Heat? Um, I would I think I would be interpreting it more as I don't know if I would say like we need to a, a major overhaul of the roster, but I do think they need. It's it's kind of similar to the Warriors actually, where they need more off the dribble creators who can play on defense. Like other than Jimmy, the the one guy they had that can really create off the dribble is Hero, but he's been flammable on defense. And then you know they the other than like the finding Max Struess to replace uh, Duncan Robinson as a guy who can obviously be a, a really good shooter, but can also survive defensively. I think was key for them, but it's a lot of their guys that do the things that they need offensively can't play on defense so i I don't know that i see like you know we're gonna trade hero and robinson and four first round picks for donovan mitchell as like the thing that solves things for them because opponents will just like go at donovan mitchell defensively you know um so i don't know what that means for like how i'd view it but like struce and gabe vincent and like Cody Martin or Caleb Martin, whichever Martin they have. I think it's Caleb. They, ha- I believe they have Caleb and Charlotte as Cody. Yeah. Um, those guys, I think, were more playoff players than, like, than certainly than Robinson, who was out of the rotation. And then, like, at times, then Hero, especially once he was hurt, where he couldn't really be out there. And then, like, Oladipo had games, like, where he was good on offense and really bad on defense. But then in the Boston series, he was great on defense, but wasn't really bringing much on offense, except for the one game where he scored, like, all their points. It's just, like, it seems dumb to say more two-way guys, but that's what it is. My inclination is that this would be an opportunity to sell high on Tyler Hero. He had a nice year. You know, I picked him as as my sixth man of the year, but the defensive limitations, as you brought up, and he can generate good offense, but can he do that as a starter? Can he do that as a finisher? I'm less enthusiastic about that and Miami is good enough right now that I think they they should think about somebody who they can trust a little bit more and Miami the as you brought up the volume of playoff players I mean the development of Max Struess and Vincent who wasn't the best overall in these playoffs but had some moments and and like throughout the route and and their ability to potentially do that more in the future who brought up Caleb Martin means that you need fewer things but what you need is in some ways more stark and like Jimmy was phenomenal overall all in these playoffs, but betting on him to be the engine for them offensively and Kyle Lowry will look better if he if he can be better physically in future playoffs, but he's getting older. And so the Heat are in an unusual place where 
what they have and what they need in terms of general archetypes are the same, but they need a better version of what they have. Sometimes that's easier to acquire and sometimes it's harder. You brought up Donovan Mitchell. That would, of course, depend on what Donovan Mitchell actually wants. And I I don't think Bradley Beal solves all of it, but I do, I mean, if he's interested, then you know, he, could, he could help. And there are a bunch of different complications in terms of making that trade. I... I think, though, that it's worth considering because Hero, maybe it's just my own skepticism and he had this weird second year where things just didn't really work quite right for him. And, you know, he was he was awful in that playoff series against the Bucks when they got swept out of the building. But I, especially with the defensive limitations, I wouldn't put everything behind him. And I understand why Hero, you know, he, he there's been already some public stuff about that he wants to start next year and that he, you know, kind of wants that opportunity. And he can want what he wants, but I I would, as Miami, and this would be different as other teams, that's why trades happen, I don't think I'd want to commit like through an extension to say he's the guy who's going to bridge this gap. Yeah, I wasn't uh, meaning to say that like Mitchell wouldn't be better for them than Hero is. Like I think he's a higher level creator. Um, he's probably, like, he's better defensively. Like he's, I don't think Mitchell has been particularly good on defense, but better than Hero. Um, I just don't know that that's like the thing that makes them like okay now a tier one right i think it would get them pretty close depending on where everything moves i mean we have a whole lot of questions in the west and yeah and um obviously we don't know who else is going to change teams or what's going to happen like but so for as an example like if they have mitchell but not hero robinson whatever else they need to get rid of to do that like are they better than boston or milwaukee if middleton's healthy i'm not not sure about that i'm not sure either but considering the extension to jimmy butler and lowry only has two more years and the third year is non-guaranteed or not partially guaranteed I would have to look at that. I don't. I don't. I. I will have to look at that in, in the future. I have it marked one way, but I. I could have missed that at some point during it. That would be. That'd be good for Miami theoretically, if if that it's were the case. Extremely possible, if not probable, that I'm wrong. Well, uh, well I'll, I'll go through it at, at some point in the future. And I. So for Miami, you know, your window is. Uh, no, you're right. There's okay. No okay. And so, I mean, Butler had more in, had more in the playoffs than I expected from him. Full credit. And so you think you kind of go through for next year. But then the other part with Miami, and you and I have talked about this a fair amount over the years, is, and this relates to the Toronto discussion we had before, is like, there are are kind of different levels. So one is, do we give up a lot of assets to try to get better? And I think you brought up a a, a reasonable point about that. I think at a certain juncture, you may just roll the dice with them. You could hold, you could generally hold firm, or you could try to, you know, scale back. And scaling back for them, they're still going to be too good to like tank unless somebody gets hurt, heaven forbid. So like, I, I think that for Miami, it's it's not, I think that option's pretty much off the table for, especially for the immediate that could shift in two, three years. But then it becomes a question of how much does it take for us to get better and how much better does that actually move? Because like going back to, I mean, I used to be a, like a long time fan graphs reader. It's like the marginal value per win, the marginal cost per win goes up significantly the better you are. Well, it's also like, why are you scaling back, you know, at the tail end probably of Jimmy Butler? prime like this is the time that you need to be scaling up Mm -hmm. 
at some point I'll probably do some digging and try to see if there is that player, you know, give up of maybe not four first round picks, but like two. And that, that could fit, that could fit in better. That doesn't have to be everything for them, but would be, you know, would be a good fit. And, and the other problem is that player has to actually be available because most of the time, especially if you're looking for somebody who's more wing sized, they're already on a good team because that's just the way this typically works out. So it's, a real challenge for them and kind of just big picture on the offseason. Structurally, this looks to be like a less interesting, more stable one. But what we have seen over these last few years is that the the kind of the form that player empowerment is taking right now, once the league partially fixed the extension system, because before it was like these guys hit unrestricted free agency like Durant and everything else, is free agency might be a little less interesting, but it's about who wants to try to make their way out. And that that's where the rubber will really meet the road for this offseason. You brought up, you know, we talked about a little bit about Donovan Mitchell before and those decisions. I think also just quickly, there are more teams in play for free agents than it seems because there's just way more sign and trades now. Right. So that's another factor. I mean, like we D'Angelo said, Russell ending up row, with the Warriors is a great example there. Right. Or two years in a row, the Heat have entered the offseason with no cap space and come away with one of the best free agents. Right. And that is a, you know, so the idea that there are, there are teams where limitations do really matter and maybe you're close enough to the tax and everything else like that. But you're right. And, and oftentimes those flexible enough teams are actually the most dangerous ones for as suitors because they might be better better positioned for that free agent's priorities you know like Kyle Lowry was significantly more interested in the heat than the Pelicans it appears because he signed with the heat and I get it you know like that was a it was a proper decision on his part and Miami had the best record in in the east and they you know, they got one win away from the conference finals despite being injured severely. And so the NBA finals, not the conference finals. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. That was the conference finals. God, it feels like so long ago. And the, so who comes out of the woodwork from a player perspective? Who comes out of the woodwork from a team perspective? And then, of course, you have the the free agent potential retentions that give their own fan bases a lot of tension this year with Harden and Kyrie Irving. And considering the general dynamic that we've seen around the league, my instinct would be both guys return and then that doesn't guarantee that they are on this team for the duration of that contract it just guarantees that they will be on they will start next season on that team especially those two guys there's no guarantee that they're on that team for the duration of the contract that's true and 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 you also have this awkwardness with those situations this came up with Miami we were talking about it before of like an uneasy piece and so it's just we need to we have this narrow window Joel Embiid you know, was phenomenal this year and if he can be healthy in the playoffs then you, you hope that he can be that you know best player in a series even against really really good teams and it's it, like I've had a lot of Sixers fans you know like I wrote a piece about Harden for the Athletic a few weeks ago and they're like oh you should just let him go it's like well it's really hard to maximize this window if you just let him go and right. that's the same dynamic with Kyrie Irving with with Brooklyn it's very difficult for them to maximize this with Kevin Durant and the, and so at a certain point you have to grin and bear it and that's the way this has always worked pretty much yeah, with the Sixers specifically I think it depends if you what you think their window is like do you think their window is these next two three years and that's it or do you think you know it's but it's, it's possible that you know an Embiid led window can last five six years if you think it's it can last five six years then I could see the argument for like you know we can let Harden walk 
uh, otherwise, it's like, you know, it's it's right now and that's it. Like, you got to win in these next couple of years because who knows how long he's going to last. Right. And my, my top priority window for them, because, you know, I, I think it's like tier one, like best window is the immediate because you don't know about Embiid, but then you're open to the possibility. And Derek Bodner wrote a great piece for the Daily Six about how to think about this. And what he was kind of focusing on is the idea of duration being more important than per year salary because it it maintains flexibility so if there is a if there is an extension in the window then you don't have to tie up all this money with James Harden and also potentially that makes him an expiring contract earlier so if you needed to change directions you could so I, I firmly agree with that I think that you know if you can make it this coming year plus one or two more that would be significantly more palatable for me and with Harden, th- there's this store, you know, this idea with both Harden and Kyrie of internal versus external leverage. Who else is really beaten down your door? And as you brought up, it doesn't have to be these like six teams with cap space. It could be somebody else. But I don't know for either of these guys who that is. Yeah, I mean, I think especially uh, Kyrie, just in the different, like, I think he's proved himself unreliable, I would say, in more ways than Harden. Harden is just like, you know, if he doesn't want to be there, he's going to like pout on the court i guess um that's better than you know not showing up for various other reasons at all like literally not being on the court um you know it's it's, it's more desirable to have a guy who's like on strike on the court than a guy who's not on the court at all i guess um but or, yeah, the, no, you, I, or the, it's hard to predict whether he will be on or off the court like harden it's it's a chat like it's an easier read even if the read isn't always your favorite book whereas with Kyrie it's just like wingdings you just don't you just can't I, I don't have the runestone for him right yeah no I, I would agree with you though that the or with Derek I suppose that the the length of the contract matters just as much if not more as or than the uh the size of the contract because that's the thing that like if Russell Westbrook's contract was one year, it wouldn't cost so much to get rid of him. Or if John Wall's contract or whoever's contract, like the fact that they're four or five years is what necessitates paying teams to take on the money. It caught like even if it's fifty million dollars, it doesn't cost as much to get someone to take on like fifty million for one year as it would like thirty million a year for three years. It's a great point. And one last thing that I can kind of end this on, you and I love talking offseason, is Harden is actually, Harden's a good example of this. Russell Westbrook is too, and like, you know, the, the idea of what you're kind of committing to. And I think Rudy Gobert is a lens for this offseason, which is you and I think a lot about the long term and how a contract like Rudy Gobert, wonderful as he is right now, paying him 42.8, 42.9 million in 24, 25, and then 44.7 in 25, 26. That's unpalatable depending on how the new TV deal comes in. The general guideposts for the current NBA is that if a player is either good or perceived to be very good right now, there will be a team that won't care as much about the long term. And so I think of Gobert as great as he was this year as being a negative value contract. I am confident that if he is traded, he will be traded as a positive value contract because he's damn good right now. Yeah, I agree. And there's going to be teams who like desperately need defensive help particularly on the interior that are going to be like we just need a guy like that and we'll trade stuff for him you know like charlotte so desperately needs literally anyone who could defend within like the general range of the paint that like they would give up something of value to get him on their team i would think on that front 
there is a component, kind of a constituent element to the idea of these heliocentric offenses. And I brought up Gobert as a heliocentric defender before. And I like Trey Young for this, but there are a lot of different guys you could use for it. Is if Trey Young is on your team, you're probably not running a switching system because that will just be too easy for the other team to defend. And so it creates a space for guys like Gobert who you can't run every scheme with them, but you can run. And I think I actually like Gobert as a switch defender more than many. But uh, the idea of Gobert, and there's been some reporting on this, of Gobert going to the Hawks makes a lot of sense for me, or even the idea of going kind of more traditional big for a t- or rim protector for a team like Memphis, because a lot of these dominant offensive players right now are so are, are small enough that you're limited in terms of the schemes that you can run. I think that makes sense. And so that, if you know, from a team building perspective, that does open up some new some new avenues where I like switching. I think that switching can work really well, but you also have to understand, and, and it's such a fun difference between James Harden and, to a lesser extent, Luka Doncic, and some of these other you know young creators. Is that like James Harden was so much better in a switching system than a non-switching system due to his specific defensive strengths and limitations, whereas Trey Young is almost exactly the opposite, even though both of them aren't good defenders. Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, like, body type matters. That's why, mm-hmm. in general, teams prefer the taller guy, at least to a certain extent of height. Like, they may not prefer a seven nine guy over a seven two guy. Um, just because it's way less likely that the seven nine guy will stay healthy. But, speaking, you know, speaking of that, I just watched a, I just watched the Taco Fall game when he was playing for the Charge. That was fun. If uh, if given the choice between you know exactly similar players who were like six eight and six one, almost every team is going to take the six eight guy. Right, and at the same point, if you have a franchise player, a game changer that's six one, you owe it to yourselves to un- to use that as a functional constraint when you're thinking about the rest of your team. And yes, like you got to build, you got to build your team around, like your team has to make sense. Like <laughs> if, you know, if your best player is six, one and can't really switch, like don't, I mean, I guess I was going to say, don't be the Raptors, but Fred Van Vliet is like maybe six foot and they are the Raptors. And he can he, switch because Van Vliet is a beast. Right. Cause he's like, you know, it's like Chris Paul strong, like Chris Paul could switch at, you know, the peak of Chris Paul. Now he's, you know, multiple years older than me. It's not really as tenable anymore well we can end it there thank you so much for taking the time thanks for having me man appreciate it thanks again to jared dubin for taking the time to come on you can read his work at 538 you can read it at the last night in basketball blog which is his Substack, and you can also check out jared on twitter at jadubin5 j-a-d-u-b-i-n and then the number five and part of the reason you want to do that is he has an authory page and so does some really good writing on the nfl as well so you can get all of that in one place Love having him on. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, whatever podcast player you use. We appreciate it. It helps you because never going to come out on a specific day of the week. can also help other people find the show by leaving a rating or review or just spreading the word. And most importantly for this show and any other that has them, you can check out our sponsors. 
for us that is bet online and you can use that clns50 code to get yourself a 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit and to tell them that you came from us and so hopefully they continue to advertise on this fair podcast you can also check out my other work nate and i are going strong with dunk don prime we are just getting into draft prospect scouting. we're actually going to do another one of those in the very near future which is going to be really fun and then of course off-season work and finals breakdowns and everything else we are calling the Celtics home games in this series on playback, which is a fascinating, awesome technology where you sign in with your streaming or cable writer and then you it, it kind of ties together all of the syncing stuff. So you watch us single screen with the audio. Very cool. And they're only they're in they're in a beta right now, so there are only four hundred people in the room at a given time. We're filling it up pretty much every game, but we love to have new people try out the tech. It's very exciting. Can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I also did the Game Theory podcast with Sam Vecini. We did some off-season previews, talked a little bit about the finals that came out. I believe that was on Sunday, but still, I mean, it's off-season previews, still very topical. And that's about it. You can feel comfortable. If you have feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I'm not the best at replying, but I will try. But I, if you, it's feedback, so it's if it's something like a guest you want to have on or do this more or less often. And I do really consider that stuff and feel like that's helped the show get a lot better over the years. So I do appreciate that. But that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank mm-hmm. you.